0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. As you're uh, having a seat, um, go ahead and open your Bibles up again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, if you missed uh, the Bible reading, uh, the first part of the service, where we read 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9, through 9, and then skip down for other verses... Um, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, so you can go ahead and go there, but also go to 1 Peter chapter 3, so keep your finger, it's going to get weird around here, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to show you kind of where we're launching off. If you were here last week, Rodney talked about the reason for marriage, what, what marriage is, how God designed marriage. And for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the different roles of marriage. But as we were at staff and we were discussing this, he said, I think it'd be a great time to also talk about singleness. Uh, which, if you're familiar with First Peter chapter 3, um, it doesn't talk about singleness. Uh, but it has a phrase that's going to launch us in a direction. And that phrase starts in, in verse 5. Uh, in verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 3, it's referenced a few other things. Which Let's just go ahead and read it. So starting in verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that um, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so what happens is we've looked at two situations where Peter looks at the church and he says, Be submissive. Your characteristic toward authority should be submissive, whether it's government authority, which is instituted by God, or whether it's where you work, or it's a slave and master relationship, that the position of your heart should be that of willing submission to them, because it reflects the nature of the gospel. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he says, likewise. So now he steps from the government area into the work area, and now he steps into the home, he says, likewise. Likewise. Wives, be submissive. And so it it goes on, and it reads this in verse 2. It says, So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let the adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is very precious. And so he turns and says, don't try to attract people in the way by your appearance, but let something inside of you, the changed life that God has done in you, let that be the main mode of attraction because it displays the character of God himself. And then this is what's going to launch us. Verse 5, it says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God, if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at this. Who hoped in God. And so wives, how do you hope in God? How you demonstrate this? It says, who used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And so it answers the question, how would a, a, a Christian wife hope in God? How would they show hope in God to their family, to the world, that they hope in God? And the answer is this, that they would be submissive to their husband. They would say, I trust God. Even if my husband is a complete bonehead, I, I trust God. It shows this great deal of trust. If you are a wife and you just nudged your husband, you just sinned. Okay? You just sinned. And there will be time for repentance later. But it shows trust in God. And so we want to say, well, I want to see an example. And he gives us an example Look at verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now right there, don't apply that into your home and say, I think you ought to call me Lord around here, wife. It's a translation thing, it's not going to go well for you. We're going to have to come to your house and talk to you, probably help you with your injuries from your wife. It's just not going to go good. But it comes to this, it says, just like Sarah obeyed and submitted to Abraham. And right now, if you're in a situation, if you're a wife in your situation, and said, Yeah, well, Abraham is the father of many nations. He started the line that led to Christ. He was incredible. God chose him. You have not read Genesis. Abraham should not have been chosen. Let me just refresh your memory on some of the things of what Sarah had to submit to. If you remember Genesis chapter 12. So they're on the way. God has called them to a place. They're not really sure where they're supposed to go. But they are journeying. It is Abraham and Sarah and their family. And they're coming into Egypt. And they get to the border of Egypt. In chapter 12, he looks at Sarah and says, Sarah, you are breathtakingly gorgeous. It's a great way to enter Egypt, right? You are breathtakingly gorgeous. People look at you and they want you. I can't believe you're my wife. And she probably started to swoon a little bit. I married the right one. Look, He's just here. He's building me up. And he says, but I'm scared when we go into Egypt that they may kill me and take you because you're beautiful. So if people ask who you are, just tell them you're my sister. Which is every wife's dream, right? That you would be your sister. It's every wife's dream that the the white knight in shiny armor would look across and say, if things get tough around here, I don't want to fight for you. Just say you're my sister so they'll take you away from me. So he goes in, Pharaoh notices her, because she's breathtakingly gorgeous. And Pharaoh takes her, and they say, well, she's my sister. And Sarah goes along with the plan. She submits to her bonehead husband and says, I'm his sister. Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household to make things even with Abraham. Gives him a bunch of sheep and goats and some camels, which isn't very flattering, And then God steps in and rescues Sarah by causing a plague in the household and showing up and saying, how have you taken a married woman into your house? So God rescues. And so the Pharaoh comes and gives Sarah back to Abraham. How could you do this to me? Pray that God might take his hand from us and relent. And can you imagine what that night was like for Abraham and Sarah? As they're in their tent, you hear the bleeding of goats and sheep all around, a reminder that you just gave me away for sheep and goats that you didn't find. I mean, could you imagine what that reconciliation looked like of, you want to have some lamb chops? I don't know. I mean, what would that have looked like? if she submitted to that, showing her trust in God. And you would say, yeah, but he learned his lesson. He changed. Read Genesis 20. He did the same thing again. And so the example is a situation where it was difficult to submit. And so it says, wives, the way you show hope in the Lord is a submissive spirit to your husbands. And then we want to take that and we want to ask this. But if you're single, or if you're a man and you're married, how do you show hope in God? And so if you're single, how do you show hope in in God? And and the question is going to be answered, turn back into 1 Corinthians 7. There's a lot of different passages that deal with this, Um, and it's going to look at the gift of singleness, and the gift of marriage, and all these different things, and the gift of sexuality, but we're going to look at primarily the gift of singleness, and we're going to see that what's happening is Paul is writing to a church that has sent him several questions. They said, we are young Christians and we are living in an adverse culture that is against Christianity. And we want to know how to mode and operate in this culture. What should we do? And so every once in a while, First Corinthians 7, you see these, uh, you see in quotations. And it's a direct quote of what they asked. And then you also see him answer questions of what he's heard about them. And they are not doing very well. And so 1 Corinthians 7, if you were here for when we read it at first, things got kind of awkward. You're like, I can't believe we're going to talk about that. And you maybe didn't want to sit but If you're dating someone, you're like, "Uh, why don't you sit up there? I'll just sit back here. But what we're going to see is this beautiful, beautiful gift. And God cares so much about your status of life, of where he has you, that he's planned it, he's gifted it, and he wants to walk you through it. And so when we look at this, the first thing that I want to do is I want you to understand that in the last probably three, four decades, the church has not done a really good job of talking about singleness. And so what we found is there's some misunderstandings of singleness. And we want to find, if you've heard this misunderstanding of singleness, if it was told to you why you were single, or if it was told to you from a preacher or from someone else or read it in a book, or if you've told this to someone else, we want to find out exactly who the guilty parties are. And so the misunderstandings about singleness. A misunderstanding number one, it goes something like this. As soon as you are satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. Now we want to know, raise your hand if you've heard that or you've said that. That, Raise them up. I know there's more than like three people read, you know, different books. Raise them up. Be proud. It's okay. Uh, So yeah, yeah, those are the guilty parties. And so this is as if as if you can trick God, as if God is going to bless that you've earned it because you have shown him your contentment, as if you can change the status of your heart to make yourself content. I mean, if you're single, and you don't want to be single, you can't just be like, well, that's just immature. I'll be happy in my singleness. That doesn't work. You can tell your small group that. You can tell your parents that. You can even pray that to God. You think God's confused? Like, He's finally arrived there. I'll give him a smoking hot wife now. Do you think that works? Okay, misunderstanding number two. You're too picky. You're too picky. You are looking for someone that doesn't exist. If you ever been told this you maybe you replied so you didn't say it you wanted to say it to someone raise your hand don't lie God's looking at you he knows okay there's one honest person you're too picky they're probably abused someone said it to him that as is if you can create a criteria of what you think will bless your life and will be something that you want to manage your life with for the rest of your life that God can't handle I mean he looked back and said yeah parting in the Red Sea that was one thing I can't find this guy I can't find this girl It's a misunderstanding. The the third thing, a misunderstanding about singleness, um, which this always comforts someone's heart, as a single, this would be encouragement, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. And so that's date night when everyone else has a date and you are all alone and your mom comes in and says, hey, don't worry, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to God's work. I mean, how good does that feel right there? First off, could you imagine calling in to the church staff office if that was the case? Could you imagine calling Travis and saying, Hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to help with those inflatables for the Super Bowl party. And him kind of responding, Well, okay, Bill, why don't you just leave the inflatables and taking care of your children, a single people to do God's work. You married people, go have babies and Instagram pictures of your cute kids. We'll just take care of this church business. Could you imagine that? And then uh, another myth of singleness. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. That's holding marriage as if it's some sort of second blessing. That when you get to spiritual maturity, only at that point God can give you someone the gift of marriage. Marriage is a gift For all mankind, lost and saved, rebellion, good, wherever it is, God graciously gives marriage. And these things, it's not that there's not parts of these things that are true that might be a part of your development. It's that wholeheartedly we need to reject them because what the scriptures say is number one, as we're looking at this, don't take that because we have to look at something else, but it's going to say that marriage is this gift. It's this gift But before we step into that, we have to look at there's great, great dangers in singleness. There's great, great dangers in singleness. And the first, there's two competing dangers and they're idols in the heart. The number one is the idol of independence. Independence. Some people are single because they don't want to share their life. They don't want to be burdened by others' life. They want to be independent. They don't want to have other people's problems. Because if you're married and you haven't figured this out, you have not been married very long. Or they work far, far away from you and you are not around them. But marriage gets difficult and it gets messy. And you cannot live independently. The Bible says you become one flesh. Her body now belongs to you, which you're real excited about that. But then it says your body belongs to her. And so you have to hold this in one union. You cannot have the idol of independence. And so some people walk through this life and they'll say things like, I'm just, I'm just too young to settle down. And you'll say, Bill, you're 50 years old. And he says, 50 is the new 47. Get with it. And so you look at it and it's like, I just don't want the burden of that. That is looking at God's gift of marriage and saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. And it is putting selfishness on the throne and is saying, "I will sacrifice to that it is an idol, it is the idol of independence, but on the other side. This is where it can be so dangerous for singles also, not just the idol of independence, but the idol of dependence. The idol of dependence screams out, "I have to be married." I have to be married. I'm nobody unless someone loves me. I can't be used. I don't have worth. I have to be married. And sometimes we breed that into our children because we keep pushing it. And when they start to get about age 25, you feel like your mission is try to set them up with everyone possible. You might even go as far as what one of my friend's mom did to sign them up for eHarmony. One of my good friends He showed up, he's like, I think I have a date. I was like, great, with who? Well, she's from Arkansas. I'm like, how'd you meet her? My mom signed me up for eHarmony, and we're compatible. I said, you are compatible with your mother's version of you. What did it say? Oh, it said stuff like, I like baseball, I like soccer. I'm like, you're 25 years old. And so we start to push people in that direction and we start to feed that idol. And so on either side of it, it is this dangerous place to be. Because on one side, it's going to use people. It's going to use people for whatever you can get but refuse to be connected to them. But on the other side, it will allow yourself to be used by any cost because you want to be connected. When these people date. It is a plateaued relationship that goes on and on, but never moves forward. Two dangers, the idol of independence, the idol of dependence. But there's another danger, and it's reversing the order of of attraction. Reversing the order of attraction. In C.S. Lewis, his Four Loves, he actually presents five. He talks about these different loves. If you're taking notes, uh, you could write these down. The, The loves he talks about is storge, which means affection or accountability. Philo, which means friendship. Eros, which means romance. Agape, which is unconditional committed love. And then Venus, which is sexuality. In this world, it starts off with where it should end. This world teaches you to walk into a room and to grade the contents of that room of the opposite gender based on first this idea of Venus on sexuality, and maybe at best, maybe on the idea of romance, eros, to go in. And if this is, for example, maybe say it's a singles home group and there's 13 guys who are single, and 43 girls who are single. It would be the danger of walking in and looking at the group of girls and eliminating 42 of them based on appearance or how they dress or whatever because you are using a world standard and never knowing that there might be true compatibility, there might be something beautiful there because you've adopted a measure that's in the world not found in Scripture. And so what should the order be? The order should start with the foundation of every good marriage is friendship. A friendship. If you're single and you're wanting to know how you should approach the opposite sex, how you should meet them, it should start with friendship that you would bear weight. Can I be friends with this person? And then it moves to the idea of compatibility, the idea of store gay. Are they compatible for me? Are they someone that gets me, that understands me? And then we move into the idea of romance. Should I, should I be with them? Should we walk down that? And then it goes to the idea of committed love. I will be with you. It's not can I be with you. I'm promising that I will be with you. And then you get to, you know, Eros, which is that wedding night. And fantastic. And so you get there. But in Christian circles, oftentimes we eliminate the majority of people because we've adopted a world standard, and we step into it, and it's kind of, what does he do? Where is he going? Or what does she look like? And so is there any wonder why we're, we're horrible at dating? Is there any wonder why we're horrible uh, in marriage, that it's infected the church? And so we cry out, God, would you help us? God, would you help us? Would you give us some clues in your word that might lead us? And that's where we get right here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 1, it says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is one of those quotes. It's one of the first quotes that he deals with. It's like, we're going to get the awkward one out of the bag and just get it done with. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman and so he quotes directly the question that was given is it good to be celibate and so he quotes he says it's good to be celibate that's what you wrote Other things that he quotes. If you looked in uh, chapter 7, verse 25, he quotes about virgins. In chapter 8, verse 1, about idols and food that's on the idol's table. About spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and offerings in chapter 16. And then even Apollos coming back in, in chapter 16, verse 12. So he's taking these questions. How should a Christian operate in this? And he's dealing with two different things that are happening. On one side, he's dealing with a Christian view that has been changed by philosophy of kind of this. Stoic regime that has this Platonic view of sex. Plato, he, kind of, he taught this that the spirit is good and the body is bad, and so it infected kind of the Stoics to have this idea that because the spirit is good and the body is bad, everything that pertains to the body is bad, and so it led them to say sex is bad. And so it started to creep into the church, and there are people preaching that sex is bad. If you're married, you should stop having sex. You should live on other sides of the room, which must have been dynamic preaching to change the current of the church. And so they were preaching this, and so they write to Paul, can you help us in there? Because all our guys are really frustrated. We need help. And so let's start with this idea. Is it good to be celibate? And he goes on, verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Most of you guys right now are asking why this hasn't been on the memorization packet. But if we keep going, verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over her body, but the wife does. Verse 5. Do not deprave one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Now, there's a few things that come out of this text that are absolutely incredible. But the main thing that comes out of this text is it declares something that intuitively we all believe. And it's easy for us to accept that marriage and sex are gifts. Marriage and sex are gifts from God. We see this description description all through the scriptures. In Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That word favor, it it means pleasure and delight. A good marriage is an object of pleasure and, and delight that is given to mankind for the purpose to reflect something beautiful about God, but also for the purpose of our enjoyment and pleasure. And so when he walks through these scriptures, he says sexuality is a very real thing. It's something that God created. It's something that's good and it's powerful. And so he's going to say, is it good for you to be single and celibate? It is good. I'm single and celibate. That's what Paul says. Is it good for you to be married and sexually active in your marriage? He says, it's a great thing. He says, both are good because they're both gifts. And so when we look at this, we want to reflect, how has God unfolded that gift in my life? I was, um, I was a super senior in college. I was in my fifth year, my victory round. And um, there was this sophomore girl. uh, Her name was Kenzie. I met her when she was a freshman, but I was a senior. She was a freshman. I had this strict rule, you can't date freshman girls because they're crazy. Uh, But she was so cute. She had spiky little hair, which at first kind of made me not want to date her because I thought the shorter hair got, the more liberated they got. Like I'd open the door, be like, no, you didn't. And I'd be like, I don't I'm from the South. I don't know what to do. And so, but I got to know her, and man, she always came around. We, we, I had six guys living in this house, um, after the fraternity house, six guys living in this house. Three of them lived in my room. Rent was so cheap, and accountability was high. And so three of them were there. She kept showing up, and she always brought other girls with her. And so I thought, well, I had to date this girl. And so I asked her if I should date this girl, and she kind of was like, "Uh," and a week later, she said yes, and so we started dating, and a month later, I moved to Weatherford, Oklahoma, to start student ministry, which I was so thankful, I was so thankful I had a girlfriend when I moved into student ministry, because some people in the church, if I would have just been single, single, it would have been their God-given mission to hook me up with any female they knew, relatively in the same age category, and so I could say, no, no, I have a girlfriend, and so it was April 22nd, we've been dating for about five or six months, known each other about a year before that as friends, April 22nd, 2002, uh, Kinsey comes into town for the weekend, she would come uh, most weekends, I'd like pawn her off to different people's houses where she could stay, and she comes in, and we do these incredible things that I never wanted to do, we planted flowers. I bought a whiskey barrel, and I stole dirt and chad rock to put in the bottom, and we planted flowers in front of my little dinky apartment, and I enjoyed planting flowers. And then we made homemade pizza. It cost like $20 to make. I don't know how pizza makes money. We made homemade pizza together, and it was so much fun as we laid stuff out, put it in the oven, and it came out beautiful and warm like our future love would be. And we pulled it out, and we ate it, and then... She highlighted my hair, and I looked like vanilla ice. (laughs) It was beautiful. She goes on, and she was staying at the Belmere's house, uh, another guy on staff uh, with their family. And I sat there, and I pondered, and I said, man, I love today. And I don't like any of the things we did. I don't like any of them. And suddenly I realized, I love this girl. I love this girl. I mean, if I can enjoy planting flowers with this girl, I could probably do anything. I could change poopy diapers and love this girl. And so I said, I think I love this girl. And so I had said that once before, and I didn't understand love, and it went bad. And so I realized, you can't trust your heart. Or Jeremiah 17 says, it's deceitful above all things. Who can understand the heart? And the, the answer is, no one. And so I said, I'm going to wait till her birthday to tell her. And so I said, God, if this is not what you want, come and destroy this thing because I don't want to hurt her. I want to protect her. I don't want to hurt me because I don't like pain. And so come and destroy it if this is not right. And so we wait. And that summer she went and worked at Canicuck. And I was doing student ministry all over the place. And she had an expectation of me writing this many letters. And I wrote this many letters. And so I was a little rocky and a little communication issues. And so we got back, and there was some building tension because she wanted to know, are you for real? Are you for real? Are you going to be around? It was coming to a place of plateau of we either need to break up or we need to move forward. And I had reserved that word. I'm not telling until her birthday, till August 30th. It's her birthday. And so we worked through and worked through, and suddenly August 30th came. And we went to eat at Victoria's, north of OU's campus. And we went to this prayer garden that we used to go to at this little Episcopal church. And we walked in there and it was dark and there were weird statues that scare you because it's kind of shadowy. And you're like, maybe it moved, not for sure. And so we, we walk in there and we sit down and I, I start to kind of unfold what I saw in her and how I loved her. And so I said, I, I, I love you. And she knew because we had already talked about it when I said, I, I love you, it means I'm going to love you. And, and she starts to cry, and I was kind of waiting, don't you have something to say to me? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, and so then it was about, I mean, six months later, and, and we got engaged, and then six months later, um, we were there, it was August fifteenth, two 2003, we were in this little country church, Clear Creek Baptist Church, it was, Jul- or, yeah, 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 it was hot. It was so hot. And I'm standing at the front of this church. I don't think the pastor liked me much because I failed the test earlier when he asked, why do you want to marry Kinsey? And I go in this great description of why I think she's good for me. And he stopped me after about five minutes and just said, Casey, the answer is you love her. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love her too, yeah. And so I was feeling a little tension there. And songs had happened. Everyone's sweating. All of a sudden, the music changed and the doors opened. And I see my father-in-law. Which wasn't what I wanted to see. (laughs) But beside her, Kinsey's dressed in white. And she is beautiful. And she starts to walk down to... It's all about you, Jesus, and she is just beautiful. I mean, beautifulness is falling off her, and it's getting on people as she walks, and they're looking beautiful, and she gets to the front, and the wedding literally lasts two hours long, because everyone in her family sang a solo, including her brother Ty, who got the first words out and then cried the rest of the song. And so we get through, and it's at that point where we... The preacher preached. We repeated some things. And and then he said, Looks at me like, You ready? I'm like, Oh, I'm ready. And we kiss and we go out to Boomer Sooner, a righteous song. And we go out and we start this new life together. And unfortunately, we go to the reception. And we have to dance and smile for hours until our face hurts. But it was this great memory. I remember all my friends getting around me at one point and throwing me up in the ceiling. I don't know why that's so special to me, but it was. And then I look at her, I'm like, "We have to leave." And she says, "Why?" And I look at her like, (laughs) "We have the marriage. The gift of marriage. There's another gift." And so we get in the car, I'm still in my tux, she's in her dress, and we drive, and we have an hour drive that I make in 35 minutes to our bed and breakfast. But coming into town, our stomachs are rumbling because we just smiled and danced. We didn't eat anything. And so we're starving to death, so we go through McDonald's (laughs) drive-thru. I'd like a Big Mac. Is there a toy with that? You know, we go through McDonald's drive-thru, and they just look at us. And we're like, we're married. And so then we go to the bed and breakfast. And apparently, according to C.S. Lewis, we experience storge. Um, or no, Venus. Doesn't even matter. It's Latin. When, you, when you're in a story like that, or when you hear a story like that, Or when you experience a story like that, it is so easy to see that marriage and sex are gifts from God. But the passage stands and it's talking about two very different things and it presents them both as incredible gifts. God said these are both gifts. Marriage and sex are gifts. But then he's going to say this, he's going to say singleness is a gift from God. If you're taking notes, it's going to say singleness is a gift from God. And it's going to start with this question, of how can that be? And we have a theologian, a professor of religious studies, who describes it like this. He says, Paul argues not only that those who are unmarried should remain unmarried, but also that those who are married should remain married. And so he's saying there's a status of life in both of you if you're single Keep in your singleness. You don't have to change it. If you're married, you don't have to change it. Stay where you are. But he goes on. But also that those who are married should remain married. Paul prefers celibacy not only for himself but also for others so they can devote themselves entirely to serving the Lord. But he does not champion it as a higher good or devalue marriage as a lesser good or as incompatible with the Christian calling. There is only one thing he completely rejects as evil. The opposite of good. It's pornea. Illicit sexual encounters. And so we read this, it sounds so weighty. Where it almost lifts singleness as better than marriage. But when we look at the whole of scripture, we have to dig deeper. Because it's lifting both of these things as gifts that God gives. That his grace abounds. That is powerful for the kingdom. And fulfilling for your life. Marriage. ...and singleness. And so we want to open this up. How is singleness a gift? And so starting in verse 7... ...he says... ...I wish that all were as myself am. He says... ...I wish you were like me. I'm single. I wish people could experience what I'm experiencing. But each has his own gift from God. If you're taking notes... ...the first thing it tells us is... ...the Bible declares singleness a gift... It says, each has its own gift. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. It says, one of one kind, one of another kind. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We're going to unpack this in a minute. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. It's a gift. It's a calling a gift that's given, a calling that's, set, that's sent out, to which God is calling. This is my rule in all the churches. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed, engaged woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. And so in verse 7, it says, I wish that you were all as myself, But each has his own gift. The Bible declares it's a gift. The word it uses there is charisma. When it says gift, it says charisma, which it means on a more broad definition. It means a gift received without merit. You can't earn it. You can't go to school for it. It's just given. It's a gift of divine grace, a gift denoting extraordinary powers. We've taken that word and we've applied charisma to someone who just seems to operate with a smoothness around people or in a situation. We say it's something they can't learn. It's just natural to them. And so when it says this is a gift, it implies that God is going to make this natural. It's not something you have to produce. It's not something you earn. It's something that will be made natural. In verse 8. He declares it's good for them to remain single. He's simply stating a fact. He says, you may not believe it, but there's a gift of singleness that is good, that is fulfilling. And all he has to do is to point to Jesus. I mean, if you are in a single life and you say, it is not possible to live fulfilled or happy... You are looking at Jesus and you're saying, I know you said you experienced the graces of God while you walked and you lived a perfect life and all these things, but you're wrong, Jesus. You couldn't possibly be single and happy, much less single and celibate and happy. You've got to be wrong. But Christianity, when it breaks onto the scene and we're looking at Jesus' life and the apostles are now teaching Jesus' message, For the first time in history, singleness was elevated to a divine calling. Before that, in in Judaism, if you were married and you lost your husband, they would pawn you off on his brother. One for self-protection, but the other to continue a name because you are nobody unless your name continues. The world looked at singles as though there was something wrong. And Christianity steps on the scene and says, there is nothing wrong. It is a beautiful gift from God. And those who are single, who need help, they have a new family. It's called the church, who will provide for them. Emotionally, they'll provide for them. Financially, they will protect them. It's a new family that will live forever. Because this marriage, if it goes really good, it might make 60 years, but that's it. Because in heaven, Jesus describes, we are not married. But this family that's found in the church will last for all of eternity. And so he declares a simple fact. You might be thinking it's not good. I'm telling you right now, marriage is good. I'm telling you right now, singleness is good. And then in verse 9, he says, but there's, there's a problem. This gift, it's charisma, it's the ability to maneuver in this life of wherever you are with some sort of ease, with some sort of ability. That's not something that's necessarily learned, it's something that's given. And so it's given in both, the gift of marriage is charisma, the gift of singleness is charisma. But verse 9 it says, but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It seems like it's saying that all the people who are married are undisciplined people who are running around like, like horn dogs, and they can't control themselves, and only the righteous single people have self-control. But it's not saying, it's saying sex is a gift from God. It's a powerful gift. Matter of fact, it's a command that we you know, go out and we continue to populate this earth, but God's gift comes in and sometimes changes and intercepts that command and says, I desire for you to be single. And so he says, but if you're single and you're trying to figure out how this thing works, if you're having trouble controlling yourself, or you're engaged and you're having trouble control yourself, and you love that person, you want to be with that person, we define God's will usually by wisdom. And so as surrounding a surrounding of people, they start to speak into our lives and they say, I, I think you should be married. And so he says it's a gift. It's a gift, and we know it can be fulfilling, and we know it can be beautiful because Jesus Himself was single. The second thing we see, we see in verse 17, it says, "God's gifts are determined by His will. God's gifts are determined by His will. In verse 17 it says, "Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned the, the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him." And so this gift. It's a calling. I struggled so much in in my call to ministry because I I had seen some pastors and they seemed kind of shiny. And their hair always seemed to be slicked back. And when they smiled, they kind of just went shing. And I I, I struggled because I didn't want that image. But I also struggled because I knew where I was. And I was like, I can't lead out in ministry because I struggle. And so I took that gift and I declared it, it has to be a maturation process. Those who are called to to, to ministry are called because they're mature. Because they're the most holy or because they know the most. But God does not operate that that way. He calls people. And we are forgiven by his grace and we walk and I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and I can minister even out of my weakness and I'm not called because of something that I portrayed. I'm called because God called and the same thing is true with singleness and marriage that God looks at the span of time. He looks at you, he says, what's going to bring me the most glory? What's going to bring you the most fulfillment? What's going to be the best display of my glory in this world? And he calls. And if singleness is a gift, that means he calls with that also. But it tells us, because everyone, especially in our culture, starts off single. I mean, if you grew up in a different culture in a different time, when you were three years old, the way it worked, the reason why the Bible didn't talk about dating is because no one dated. The way it worked is they looked at their three year old, I'd look at Quinn. And then I'd look at, you know, Rodney's son Caleb, and I'd be like, well, it seems like he likes to bite her. I mean, maybe that's, you know, affection, I don't know. And so we'd look at him, and we'd make a deal, and then you would be betrothed. Until you got married, you were going in the direction that you were going to be married, you're betrothed. And that's how it worked. But now, everyone has a season of singleness. And so we're trying to determine, is it a gift and a calling from the Lord Or is it a season? And whatever is not a calling or a gift becomes a duty. And so it comes to this idea that God's gifts are determined by his will. How do I know if my gift is singleness or my gift is marriage? And so we want to keep going. And so the first thing we're going to see in verse 27, it says, it talks about the situation. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a a wife. And so it tells us this. It tells us that we should trust God's gift for you, and specifically, we should trust where we are. If you're married, your gift is not singleness. Your gift is marriage, and you've got to do marriage better. If you're single, it's certainly a duty now, and you're wondering, God, what would your mercy have for me? And so we need to start to practice whatever, as we trust God's leading. In verse 28, it says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you, a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And so it tells us a little bit of the mode of how I'm trying to figure out, God, is this something you want for me? All, oh, but I desire to be married. I, I want to be married. But is this what you have for me? If you do, you have to change my heart. And so God says, you determine my will. The secret things of the Lord are usually determined By practical means. And so we we try to control ourselves in in righteousness. And we try to walk in such a way. And we get to know the opposite sex on the basis of friendship. And we have community around us that would speak into it to say if we feel like we're compatible. And as our heart grows in affection for them, that it leads us to this committed love. This agape that I'm saying, I don't just love you now. I will love you in the future. That becomes a process of determining what God has for you. And it's difficult. Um, Married people, when you have opportunities to counsel single people, don't say crazy things that aren't helpful. Like when they ask, How do you know if you should marry that person? Don't say things like, You'll know when you know. It doesn't help anyone. And I know, I've only been married back like eight and a half years, and I look back and it seems so obvious, and I don't know why I struggle, I don't know why I doubt it, but you have to remember and go back to the moment and just be with them and say, it, it is hard, but let's go back to, do they have a faith that's encouraging to you? Do they love the future that God is leading you in? Are they compatible in a way that you feel loved and treasured? That people would come around you and they'd be able to speak into that. That you would live in such a community that they could stand in front of you and say, this is not good for you. And you would listen to them. There would be pain. You might even hate them for a season. But you would say, I know they love me. So I I can trust them. And so the secret things of God, we have to work out. We trust where God has us. We start to trust God's leading. There's these practical things that start to break out. And then we come to this place that we have to trust that Jesus must redeem both singleness and marriage. In verse 28 it goes on and says yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. I would spare you of that. And so what Paul is saying right here is he's saying singleness is hard and dangerous because of sin. Because the fall of mankind that happened in Genesis 2, it's hard and dangerous. But he's saying this, marriage is harder and more dangerous because of sin. And so when we look at this, we we see what Rodney talked about, the beautiful display of marriage. We also see the incredible potential of marriage. The recreational power that's on you because of marriage. And we know this intuitively. The recreational power that is on you because of marriage means when you're married, you are binding to someone, you're binding yourself to them, and you are given the keys of your life to incredibly encourage you and to give you strength beyond measure, or to completely decapitate you and leave you in weakness. You can take a successful, you can take a successful man. In every area of his life, people would point to him and say, you are powerful. But if at home he is a wife that continually says, you are weak, you are weak, and demoralize him, he will move into the world in weakness every day. But the reverse is true. You can take a man who every indicator of life says you have failed and and you're barely getting it done. But if at home his wife has the ability to encourage and build up with loving eyes, they can move out into a world of darkness that is coming around with sober-mindedness of exactly how it is, but they can move out in strength. Marriage is that powerful. And so it says, when sin has its way with marriage, the pain of a bad marriage is far more than the pain of loneliness and singleness. And so he gives it with this warning. And all of humanity knows that intuitively because they all say you should be careful who you marry. They all say you shouldn't just marry anyone. You should be very careful. And so we see that we need to trust this gift. So we start with where God has you. When we go to where is he leading. And then we see that there's dangers on all sides. And we ask this question. So where does that leave me now? With the reality of where I am married or where I am single or where I am widowed or where I am divorced. In the display of God's gospel, where does it lead me? And if right now you're you're sitting in a situation and you're feeling, you're feeling a heaviness Of God laying his hand upon your heart and he's convicting you of where your marriage is or where your apathy is or maybe it's where you are in singleness and both those idols of independence and dependence play out in marriage and in singleness and it's starting to convict we would want to hear the words and the warnings that A.W. Tozer gives us in chapter 2 of The Pursuit of God the blessedness of possessing nothing. In the second chapter of his book one of my favorite books that I've ever read, The Pursuit of God, he retells the story of Abraham and Isaac walking to the altar on top of the mountain. Abraham, who was told that he would be the father of many nations, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and there was still no son, and they were 90 years old plus, and they were barren, and God came to him and said, I'm going to keep my promise, and Sarah became pregnant, and they had Isaac. All the hopes and the dreams of what God promised now lay upon this boy. This small child, it's all laid there, and he becomes the object of their affection, and they're old. And so they're like grandparents raising a child, and so they adore him. They adore him. I see my children, and I love them, but when I see my parents and my parents-in-laws look at my children, sometimes I wonder what they see, because they see they can't do anything wrong. They absolutely adore him. And God comes to Abraham. He says, I need you to give back to me what you love most on this world. And so take your son, take no lamb, take nothing, and you are going to worship me on a mountain, and I want you to place what is most precious, your son, upon the altar. So Abraham packs his bags. And as he's packing, he takes his son, and he gathers the wood and he takes the knife and he loads it up on, on a donkey and a servant comes with them and they start walking and they come to a mountain and God moves and says this is the place and they start up the mountain just Isaac and his dad and they build an altar and Abraham places his most pride possession the thing that is most precious to him in this world He places Isaac upon the altar. And when we are in our place of singleness, which God says it's a gift, and we say, God, I don't see how it can be a gift, and you're looking to marriage, and there is an emptiness in you, and you are begging God to fill it, and you are asking him to make you content, and it's not all misery. You have have fun with friends, and you have some optimism, or you're in complete despair. God would move you in that place, and he would say, just as he did Abraham, would you take what's most precious and place it upon the altar? And if you're married and you're in a place where you have this ideal of what marriage should be and your partner is failing you every day and it's probably a self-righteousness that's in you that you think they can save you and they're not Jesus and they can't save you and you are crushing them. Would you take those ideas and just as Abraham placed Isaac, would you place him on the altar? And what that means is, would you tangibly let go? And the beauty of that story is that God came down and said, Moses, now that I see you, will hold nothing from me. Take your son off the altar. And they provide a ram, a ram to be the sacrificial scapegoat that's placed upon the altar and it's this beautiful pointing picture to a much greater sacrifice because there would be another son that walks up with the wood on his back up a hill There would be another son that stands upon the altar and is cried out to sacrifice, but this time is sacrificed. There would be another father who loses his son on the hill of Calvary and he is placed upon the cross and he becomes a sacrificial lamb so we don't have to sacrifice our children. God sacrificed his. And there is hope in the gospel because God who gave so much look at me. God who gave so much so Abraham wouldn't have to, so you wouldn't have to. God who gave so much. Do you think now he's going to withhold something good from you? He gave so much. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to spend some time praying. We're going to have a time of worship and there's so many avenues of repentance here that, that we would look at. And, and so first off, start, where are you? Where are you? It starts, am I single? Am I married? Am I engaged? Where are you? Am I widowed? Am I divorced? Where are you? Where will you be found? The next place, as you cry out, you say, God, this is where I am. The next place would be to disclose where your heart is. Are you satisfied? It does no good to try to build some case to show God was not true and to say, of course I'm satisfied. It does no good but that you would bear the truth upon the altar and you would say, there's something lacking. There's something I'm missing and I don't know what it is. And the question is, is that of God or is it not of God? Because the scriptures say marriage is a gift and it's easy to understand that unless you're in a difficult marriage. On the other side, who say sex is a gift. And it's easy to understand that unless sin has hijacked sex and sex has been used as an instrument to use you or hurt you and it has no beauty to you at all. Where are you? Or do you feel in your singleness an anxiousness or a bitterness creeping up? Where are you? And this would be the question, what would God have you lay upon the altar? Do you trust God? If God says singleness is a gift that he gives, that he looks through the corridor of time and he chooses, and you don't know if that's you, and you don't know if it's not you, it would be this. Do you trust that God is good? The God who marched his son up on hill, up on this hill, and sacrificed him as atonement for you? Is he still good? Will he still give good things? Can he be trusted in what he gives and what he calls? Father, for some of us, it's looking at a a really broken marriage. And he's saying, do you trust me to walk into that brokenness and repent? To walk in that brokenness where you might be hurt by the other person, but to live openly and let them take the knives and stab you. You trust me. Or it's a married couple that's experiencing some some beauty. Will you open your lives to broken marriages or single people? Will you open your lives to love them and cultivate what true marriage looks like? Not perfect marriage, just real marriage. going to be messy would that be a gift from God would that be God's grace in your life to get in people's lives that are messy, that are difficult do you trust God's grace or in your singleness right now it doesn't feel like a gift at all there's things that you would point to that that are, are benefits of it but right now it feels really lonely Right now, as a birthday comes, you feel like you're getting older and fear is setting in, and you see the pool that's around you of possibilities shrinking. Do you trust God? Your act of worship would be honesty and surrender as you let go. Father, we love you, and we need the gospel to recreate us. And, Father, we need to know that every good gift is from you and when a gift is given from you and doesn't feel good that we shouldn't trust our perception but we lay in wait that your gift would be made known Lord would you heal our marriages Lord would you heal our singles would you give them strength to walk out in this world that they may boldly declare and demonstrate a forgiveness that we received? that would not be an arrogance that I learned a few steps and I made myself who I am because that is a lie I have been given grace so I can have grace for others you. for some none of this makes any sense because you haven't experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and he has pulling upon your heart and your sins are laid bare before you and you look at how you've dated and how you've been married and you've done it selfishly and you've done it your own way and it is weighing upon you and Jesus offers you grace. Would you call upon him and say, Jesus, you are Lord, forgive me. Help me walk in your precepts. Father, weigh up on our hearts where we are. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.